This is the Monday, January 29, 2018 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes for a brand new episode every other Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Adventures with Admiral Byrd. Another thrilling episode from the breathtaking career of one of America's greatest explorers. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. In this episode, our time machine turns icebreaker and heads south to the other land down under for a chilly Jazz Age adventure. Our guide on this amazing journey is Lori Gwen Shapiro, who brings us the story of a scrappy Polish-American kid from Manhattan's Lower East Side. His name is Billy Garonski, and he steals away on a journey for the Roaring Twenties' final frontier. Her book is The Stowaway, a young man's extraordinary adventure to Antarctica. It's the spectacular, true story of a young man who snuck onto the flagship of famed explorer Commander Richard E. Byrd, who we know today as Admiral Byrd. Billy did this and demanded a place among the crew and in the pages of history. Our guest is a native of Billy's Corner of Manhattan, and you've seen her writing in New York Magazine, Slate, the Los Angeles Review of Books, as well as in her history column focusing on unsung heroes like the ones we'll be talking about today. Lori Gwen Shapiro is also a documentary filmmaker who won an Independent Spirit Award for directing IFC's Keep the River on Your Right, a modern cannibal tale. She also earned an Emmy nomination for producing HBO's Finishing Heaven. Visit her online at lorigwenshapiro.com, follow her at Lori's Stories on Twitter and Instagram, or toss her a like to facebook.com slash Lori Gwen Shapiro. Okay, now that we've piled aboard the SS New York and bundled up for the journey, let's join Lori Gwen Shapiro and meet the stowaway. I'm joined via Skype by Lori Gwen Shapiro, author of The Stowaway, a young man's extraordinary adventure to Antarctica. Thank you so much for making time to chat with the History Author Show. I'm so delighted to be here. This is one of my favorite things in the world is talking about history. So here we go. (laughs) Well, mine too, as you might imagine. And I love all of the energy that you have, not just right here that listeners are going to be able to hear, but all throughout the stowaway, you can really sense your excitement. And we catch this excitement from this amazing young man. 
The word that appears a bunch of times in the stowaway is one that we don't hear much today, and I wanted to start off with that. It's the word plucky. <laughs> How did that quality help Billy Garonsky capture the world's imagination in the jazz age, even during a time people couldn't say his name, couldn't spell his name, yet he, ca- he captures their imagination, does young Billy, but also yours when you just stumble on a single article about him. What is this plucky characteristic that he had? Well, I think the thing about about Billy Garonsky, and you know, this is a nonfiction book. People think it's a novel, but this is my pr- protagonist in a nonfiction book where he's stowing away to Antarctica in 1928, literally jumping in the Hudson River to swim to the ship where Commander Byrd, who we all later know as Admiral Byrd, is located. Um, he didn't just, I mean, I don't want to give too much of the story away, but just you have to know right up front, this didn't just happen one time. This kid just kept stowing away and stowing away to the yeah. point where first it was everyone in New York City was cheering him on, particularly teenagers, as you would probably imagine. Um, he was sort of an anti-hero at first. But then I think his pluck actually won over the crew. And I think the thing with Richard Byrd, who many people might not remember now, but back in 1928, he was a household name like Charles Lindbergh. He loved to have crews where everyone got along. He wanted team. The fact that he saw that his own crew was cheering for this kid really helped in favor of him getting aboard this expedition to Antarctica. There's so much in the book already, but I want to pause on one thing to tease there, and that is that, yes, he does not just stowaway one time. So if people thought they misheard there, that's actually a fact. You'll have to pick up the stowaway to, to find out his amazing trek to become part of the crew. He's not just some kid that hides in the hole for six months or whatever you might imagine the time would be before he's found and kicked off. He has a he makes himself a vital part of the crew. He really is inspiring. He's inspiring to Polish Americans at the time. Billy's parents are both immigrants from Poland and the heritage plays a big part in the stowaway as this young for his age kid. You talk about his squeaky voice. He seeks to be the first pole to reach the South Pole. This is another thing that's he thinks he'll be attractive to Bird. He's really pitching himself. Poland Magazine said he'd go down in history as the Kosciuszko of the Bird expedition. That gives you an idea of how they really start rooting for him, right? Describe the New York City of Billy's youth and the Hoboken, which is where he dives into the water there. Every day when I go through there on the train by where I used to live, I try to picture him in the water at Pier 1, and I would not dive in there, I don't think, at 17, (laughs) to try to reach a ship and swim all that way. So describe what the conditions are in the city at that time and how he becomes the obsession of Admiral Byrd's expedition, how that becomes his obsession. Well, I think one thing that you need to know is that Billy Goronsky is a Polish Catholic kid, and he grew up on the streets of the Lower East Side, where I actually live and where my family has been for over 100 years. So that part I was a little bit more familiar with. But there was a community, a large Polish Catholic community right there in the East Village, there still is a church there called St. Stanislaus, but that immigration of the early 1920s and the teens, those people have dissipated into different communities, but there's still a vestigial community there. But his father was a member of a group called the Polish Falcons, which many Poles will know was a group, primarily men, I think all men, who were trying to keep strong with the hope that 
Poland would become a nation again, which we know it did. But one of the ways they did that is by keeping athletically fit, including swims in the river, swims in the ocean. I think a lot of people have seen pictures of the Coney Island swim. I think the Falcons were the people that were among the first to do that on January 1st when everyone dives into the water. At that time, 1928, children on the Lower East Side also swam in the East River. I'm a child of very old parents, and my father is 97, and he will tell me all the time how he used to swim in the East River. So the water really got terrible around 1929 with more chemicals. It was really bad, but 1928, you weren't killing yourself. And there was a teeming immigrant community in the Lower East Side. So even though Billy was Polish Catholic, if you want to play stickball, you had to learn Yiddish. (laughs) So like his friends were were Jews and Catholics. He went to a school that catered towards a lot of immigrants called Textile High School, where there were a lot of African-American kids in leadership positions, and they were being trained to enter the textile industry, which was dominant in New York at that time. And believe it or not, he was a very His family was very progressive. There was a tight Catholic community, but his mother registered to vote in 1920 when women got the right to vote. And his family was very active in with the Red Cross. And I think it was a, a wonderful time. I mean, you have to remember the Great Depression started in 1929. And so immigrants in 1920s were really doing wonderfully. His parents arrived with no money and they had a small company, but it was an upholstery company, which is not what Billy wanted to do, Billy the reader of all these adventure books. But, (laughs) you know, his parents weren't working in a factory. They had gotten themselves to the place where they had a little bit of a nest egg. A working immigrant class that was was starting to do well, with dreams of the next generation going bigger. And he's an only child, people may assume, a Polish Catholic family in that era that he had a ton of brothers and sisters. But really, everything is riding here on young Billy's shoulders. So that's a great family story. It's wonderful. And also, one of the secrets I found out was that his father, who was hoping to be the, I guess, designer, interior designer to the stars of Bayside, before there was Hollywood, there was Bayside Mm -hmm. Queens. So he was trying to move the family out there to get all the stars. But he... He relied on his son because his father was secretly colorblind. And Billy was also his eyes, you know, he would tell him back at home what color was what. Amazing. Which was something fun. You know, that's the kind of thing you find out in deep research. <laughs> yeah, that's an amazing little detail there. Like the swimming. And I wanted to say, first of all, God bless your father. Did you say 97? He's 97 years old. He's just wow, moved great. in rent-free, I have to say. As a, a sort okay. of. A... <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought of him because you said this swimming. And when you think about that period, people before that, didn't swim a lot. And that's one reason that there was the P.S. Slocum disaster, the paddleship that caught fire in the East River. And this is from the area that was formerly Little Germany that Billy is right in the middle of. And people that were on that boat, mostly women and children from the St. Mark's Church, they didn't know how to swim. People just didn't swim back then. Today right. and, and since then, we they really were throwing you in the water. People were doing it not just for recreation, but because if there was another Slocum, nobody wanted to be 
so close to land and drown after you dive in. I like that thread here that Billy applies this idea of, well, you're, you're in America now, you're in an, an island, Manhattan's an island, so maybe everybody should learn how to swim. And he decides to use it to dive into that frigid water with no plan, which I love. It reminds me of Winston Churchill when he jumps out of the Boer prison camp. And of course, he's a prisoner of war. He plans to have accomplices, but as it ends up, he's the only one to make it out. And he has nothing but his hat and maybe a couple bars of chocolate, I think. No compass, no map. He doesn't speak Afrikaans. And he just goes for it. And that's Billy's spirit here. Billy just says, well, no, I'll figure that out when I get there. I'm not going to worry about it. He did get a little tip. His father, who did not want him to stow away, there were 70,000 people applying for the volunteer spots, which Rockefellers and Vanderbilts were going for it. His parents thought he was being ridiculous. First of all, he's a 17-year-old kid when this was going on. But his father let slip that in 1926, when Bird, Commander Bird then, had been said to have flown over the North Pole, that during that expedition there was a stowaway that might have been involved that was connected to this trip, a radio operator. So that his father accidentally <laughs> yeah. put the seed that was his father's undoing that his son was going to stow away. So he had a scrapbook on Commander Bird that would put any beat reporter to shame. He knew every single person on that trip. He knew it cold. This was his topic. And Bird was also his childhood hero. Bird was a much bigger name than Lindbergh in 1926. And people don't remember, but the person that Lindbergh was flying against was Richard Byrd to go across the Atlantic for the Ortiz Prize. And his plane had something wrong with it. And from there, Lindbergh went ahead and won. Nobody knew who he was. He was an overnight name. And so Byrd partly wanted to have this trip to have a legacy. But Billy had been collecting articles on him for his scrapbook since 1926. And to this day, I believe Bird is the only person to have had three ticker tape parades in New York City. Hmm. One for North Pole, one for losing to Charles Lindbergh, and one for the, his first South Pole expedition. I love how Billy roots for him. And you mentioned in the stowaway the way other kids are rooting for baseball players and trading baseball cards. <laughs> and here he is ba- making his own baseball cards almost with Bird and cutting out his picture and memorizing all of these details. Although the book is called The Stowaway, Billy isn't the only young person. There's even a girl, Sunshine who attempts to stow away with the expedition. So this draws so many people. You talked about how many applied, but he alone manages of all these stowaways not to be the one that they just put ashore. There's another one that we'll talk about a little bit later that becomes involved with the expedition. But how does his persistence, I guess you'd say, carry him in there so that he becomes a valued member of the crew? Well, I think that the one thing that was admired about him was that he really literally didn't give up. The most amazing attempt was first the swim along the Hudson River. But as you hinted at, there were other stowaways on board. They all were shown the side of the ship, except for one, which we'll go into. But he didn't get to go to Antarctica. But he then stowed away again on the supply ship, thinking that no one's even going to look at the supply ship. But they caught him again. And then 
you think, okay, the kid's going to, like, give up at this point. Even at the second one, he didn't even bring any extra food or clothing. But he decided <laughs> that he was going to hitchhike down to where the supply ship was reloading in Virginia and in, in Hampton Road. And he basically just wowed everybody. I mean, can you like, and Bird, when he heard that Billy had come into Virginia, started laughing. He said, you got that wrong to the reporters. And they said, no, he's here. And he said, how can that be? <laughs> and I think that um, what was really wonderful was that I found a very old article from Virginia where a nameless reporter was talking about Bird finding out that Billy had actually hitchhiked down for a third time and how he burst into laughter. And I think that's a really good window into how he felt. He was secretly admiring the kid. He was less of a nuisance and more of an amusement. But I think what was so fascinating to me in following the course of his story is that he really did want to prove himself to Bird. And there were several occasions on this trip that he actually did. So he starts out as a mess boy but his life got a lot harder from there. It's a lot harder than washing dishes in the galley mm. when you have to go down to the coal room. Even lower. Yeah. <laughs> Almost just a mascot, just somebody that's along for a laugh. Like baseball teams of the period would just carry along a young kid that they thought was good luck or to be the bat right, boy. And then right. they would just dump you in a town along the way when their luck changed. We've tweeted back and forth. I've tweeted to you at Lori's Stories where listeners can go and follow you about Various things, pictures, great stuff about the stowaway. And one thing I said that people will find when they pick up the book is there's those moments when you're reading it where you say, oh, come on. At least I did. And you, know, you say, really like, <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. And that's the thing. Like, when you read it, you will think this author cannot possibly be honest. But I'm telling you, all the footnotes are there. All the stories are there. And that story of him getting on that boat what a great way to start. So if people will see that when they read it. But it's just such an amazing series of events in his life and this never give up. And also your writing style that brings it alive. And I felt as if you were winking at us and sharing the excitement you felt here throughout the stowaway. For example, you'll set small things off in brackets every now and then, humorous thoughts about Passover, for instance, for <laughs> one of Billy's crewmates, his Jewish crewmate. And you say, I believe, how is this night different from any other <laughs> night? Well, it's negative 50 below. And so <laughs> that's those little things and Billy's inner monologue. That's really a lot of fun. And I know that this is a new frontier for your writing career. So uh -huh. how did you develop that narrative voice and decide that's how you were going to tell this story? Or was there just no other way to tell it? Because Billy grabbed your hand and said, here, tell my great story, miss. Well, first of all, I knew that this was an unknown story. I mean, he had actually been quite well known in 1928, a lost story, I should say. But there are people that know about Byrd's expeditions to Antarctica. He had, there were four expeditions altogether. This was his most famous one. This was the first American expedition to Antarctica and put Antarctica on the map for Americans who didn't care in the way that the British and other Europeans cared about their heroes like Shackleton and Scott and Amundsen. Byrd really was the first time people were focused on Antarctica. But I think that there was so much to kind of take in. I mean, in addition to Billy, you have Admiral Byrd, or, you know, he becomes Admiral in the middle of this book, but you have over 60 people on the crew, you have his family, and I thought the last thing we need is to interject my 
story. There's a lot to get out there. And I think that at first, I, I, you know, you play with a few things. And I thought, this is not my story at all. This is really Billy's story. It's a lost story. And I'm not doing him any service by interjecting myself into this book. Although there was a temptation because I got so dedicated to the story that I actually decided to track the exact spots that he went to Antarctica and I actually got to New Zealand to the very bottom of New Zealand to go to the Ross Sea which is a very difficult place to get to most Americans that go to Antarctica will go from Argentina to the peninsula but to the Ross Sea is where the explorers went of the heroic age and then the age of aviation and it's much closer to the South Pole and much colder and the weather is unbelievably tough I mean the the winds, the waves, you can't imagine. But I wanted to have that experience as well and to see the penguins for the first time, to see the ice barrier, which we now call the Ross Ice Shelf. I wanted to have that feeling of literally going from the Lower East Side to Antarctica. And again, I live streets away from where Billy lived as a young man. And I felt that, oh, I could put that in. And then I thought, you know what, that's just still not his, that's not my story to tell. And so it really was a moment of holding back. And I did put in an author note, which explains a little bit about that. But that's as far as I got in terms of interjecting myself into what I thought was a crazy tale to begin with. We didn't need it to get even more complicated. <laughs> <laughs> it's something, because it would have been very natural for you to want to jump in there with him and, and have your experiences. So I really right. appreciated that when I picked it up, because it is fast-paced. You want it to be, especially when, had you done that, it would have been easy to linger over the fact that, hey, they're living in the ground in the ice when they have Little America down there. And so you could have really dragged it out with that and talked about a lot of the day-to-day things, and it would have just bogged the book down. Well, I think that it's a shorter, it's, it is a full-length nonfiction book. I happen to love books that you can almost read in a night. It's not, I didn't want it to be I mean, Billy Goronsky is a wonderful character, but, you know, he's not Winston Churchill. I'm not going to write a tome about him. (laughs) (laughs) You know, people are not going to want to spend 800 pages with this man. But I think that I thought perhaps if I do a well-edited, controlled narrative that people might pick up a book about someone they've never heard of, perhaps they've heard of Admiral Byrd. Um, and that's another way to get them in. But, you know, he isn't the greatest man in history, but I think he's one of the most interesting side characters that I've come across in many years. Because he is a way in as a 17-year-old boy, he was the youngest member of America's first expedition to Antarctica. And I was able, as we'll probably talk about this, uh, I was able to get tremendous access to his life and his experience. And with that, I thought, what a wonderful guide for us He didn't know anything really going in other than what he had researched in his own library down the street. And why don't we go with him together and and let Antarctica unfold for us? It's great because there wasn't much to be known at the time. This was a real genuine adventure. This is not getting on the bus at Port Authority for the first time and going to Atlantic City when you're 21. I mean, <laughs> this is really into the unknown. He doesn't know if he's going to find dinosaurs down there, literally. And he not just because he's a kid. I mean, adults think that there could be a warm, tropical, forgotten Absolutely. land down there. So it's so exciting. You have to think about that for a second, that there, <laughs> the difference between 1928 and America's 
expedition and 1911 where the other famous expeditions are 1910 and 1911 where you have that Shackleton Scott Almiston was the first to actually walk to the South Pole beating out Scott but this is the age of aviation and this is very important to remember as you read my book because not only are they bringing the dogs, which is great, you know, for anyone who loves old dog stories, you know, they, they brought 100 dogs to the area, but they're also bringing airplanes. There were three airplanes going to fly over the continent for the first time, and they're not going to just have what you can see by foot. You're going to see a much wider view, and that's why publications like Popular Science even – speculated that there could be indigenous people that we're going to see for the first time. There could be lost creatures. You have to remember this is also the time of the Komodo dragon coming onto the map. I mean, there were new things being explored. King Tut was discovered not that far before, and so they didn't know what they were going to see by being up in the sky. Imagine someone flying over America for the first time and saying, oh, look at that thing, which is the Grand Canyon. (laughs) I mean, there's things that you can't see just by walking a straight path in blinding snow. I wanted to mention something that was a very practical concern for you researching, and that's you find that first article that you mentioned, and then you go in search of more about this kid, but they're constantly misspelling Garonsky. It's G-A-W-R-O-N-S-K-I. Then he complicates it by sometimes giving an anglicized version of the name, which was common among immigrant families there. You wanted your upholstery made, which, by the way, not a trade would be needed for this great adventure he wants to <laughs> He be. called himself Gavron. So I want yeah. So- <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's very interesting because when I first started to look for this story, I was, I was working on a short article about the Polish Catholic Church in my community, and I thought it had, you know, it's the first Polish Catholic Church in New York City, and it had a very interesting history, but when I found out about this stowaway in one article, I just sort of stopped everything. I said, whoa, what is this? And I just started to really concentrate on him, but I couldn't find anything else. And I had this sort of aha moment that my friends that have long Polish names, no one ever bothers to spell it right. Maybe if I started to play around with letters, I guessed that there might be reporters that couldn't handle a very long Polish name in 1928. (laughs) And I thought, why am I not getting, this is such a crazy story. There has to be more articles. And I started to put different spellings in and everything started to pop up. I got, I went from one story to eight to 15. And then I was able to really start to build a story, but I still didn't have enough. And I really felt that if I was going to tell this story as a book, I really needed some kind of descendant alive to give me more information. And that was what I was, once I had like a core of about 10 articles, I started to look for a descendant of Billy Gronsky's. And then you could really look for somebody that was living that could help you figure out what that was. Right. And I made a crazy, absolutely not so chart. (laughs) (laughs) I laugh about it now. My Excel chart of Gronsky's up and down the Eastern seaboard. And I would call people up and say, Hi, um, I'm wondering if you possibly are descended from a kid that swam across the Hudson River and uh, stowed away to Antarctica. <laughs> click, click. <laughs> and I, it was very quite funny. And after a while, I gave up. And then I got around the 19th time, I called someone and she had a Polish accent. I thought, well, Billy was actually born in America. This isn't going to be his kid. And I was about to hang up. But I did my spiel 
And I heard this lady say in a very frail old voice, she said, that was my husband. And I had a chill. I had goosebumps. Wow. I just, wow. That was my Titanic moment. And I, yeah. and she said, I was hoping somebody would call one day. I have so many things. I have scrapbooks. I have his yearbook. She was living up in Cape Elizabeth, Maine, and I was there within two days. And it was just a, a gift from heaven. Honestly, I just suddenly, not only did I have articles that were lost, there were also newspapers that you can't even find on microfiche anymore that were in the scrapbook. I had family photos. I had a person who had been living with him for many years. I knew that the access that I had just achieved was a way to be able to tell the story. Because I think to tell a story of someone who's not particularly well-known in history, you really need that authentic access. And I, I had it by finding his widow alive, which is, you know, she's an old lady. If I hadn't found it, I don't know if this story would have ever been told. Yeah, it would have just been thrown away, which is chilling to think of. It's so terrifying to think of it. You don't keep making those calls. We don't have this story. Absolutely. And I almost gave up, but I just thought, oh, I'll just make three more calls. And I just had a lot more coffee and kept going. <laughs> but it was wonderful. It was so wonderful to be able to work with her. And from the very beginning, this was the love of her life. She was delightful and never used the Internet. So I pretty much had to go to Maine or call her and she's hard of hearing. But <laughs> I was able to go a few times to Maine and really go through everything in the in the family archives. They didn't have any children together, but he also had two kids from a previous marriage. And I was able to, I thought both of his sons were dead. This is not in the book. This is all backstory. But <laughs> I found one of his sons alive who was in jail. And I was in maximum security prison in Florida. And I got permission from an Antarctica buff in the prison system to go down and interview him and not talk about anything else. And it was just amazing. I think that it was a combination of persistence on my behalf, as well as a little bit of old fashioned luck, just like Billy had. You know, I, I felt a little bit like him as I was going on my journey, my, my own journey. You're enjoying my exciting, spirited, plucky chat with Lori Gwen Shapiro about her book, The Stowaway, A Young Man's Extraordinary Adventure to Antarctica. You can visit her online at LoriGwenShapiro.com, follow her at Lori's Stories on Twitter and Instagram, or Facebook.com slash LoriGwenShapiro. Mark Kurlansky, best-selling author of Paper, Paging Through History, writes, quote, Lori Gwen Shapiro wrote The Stowaway like a Jack London novel, with a sense of adventure, wonderful detail, a lineup of intriguing characters, and above all, a great story. This is the best of nonfiction. Lori, you stepped outside your comfort zone, literally down there in the far south, to bring us this adventure. The Wall Street Journal wrote that you admit you're no great adventurer yourself, and they said you're, quote, keenly aware that on the surface, she isn't the most suitable writer to tackle the subject, unquote. And I know, like me, as somebody who lives in New York, you're a native New Yorker down there from the Lower East Side. We all know people that say, well, adventurous for me is I don't go above 23rd Street. I'm not... <laughs> Get a nosebleed. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I had a friend, he said that. He says, oh, I'm, I'm looking. He was on J-Date, and he said, I'm, I'm not going to go for anybody that's above 23rd. And this girl, I said, how did he find you? She 
lived in Connecticut. And she said, oh, you know, I used to live down there in Gramercy Park, and I never changed my address when I put my J-Day profile. So fortunately for that little white lie for him, that's how he ended up connecting her. He would have just uh, deleted her. So since you don't in the book talk too much about that trip to Antarctica in the stowaway, tell us a little bit about how you did use it. You said how you didn't shove yourself into the story, but what parts that were maybe left out about the cold, the climate, the animals, what parts did you learn that helped you flesh out Billy's story? Well, I really had a very strong sense that in order to talk about Antarctica, I had to experience it because I find that the best nonfiction, the author has actually gone to locations. So one thing that I did is by leaving from New Zealand where they left, I was able to cross the water and feel the waves. And I have to be honest with you, everyone around me, I was on an expedition with about 65 people, and there's very few expeditions that go to the Ross Sea. So it was a very special one, and very seasoned travelers were on it. There were no New Yorkers, by the way. But I was up on deck I was not passed out vomiting like a lot of my people um, on the trip. And I I was pleasantly surprised by that. The thrill of the waves coming at you, that is something I could not describe unless I had experienced it. But the next thing that happened was that you start to see the giant icebergs, and then you actually start to see the penguins that they the explorers would see in the order the furthest penguins are the empire ones the big giant ones but you first see the tiny Adelie penguins and we would be able when we were in that area i was in the cheapest room by the engine room and a triple so don't get too excited about my adventure but <laughs> the point is i was there but um we had helicopters on our ship because this was a highfalutin expedition and we would fly over to the ice And we would also take Zodiac uh, inflatable boats out. All of a sudden, we were in the sites where Shackleton and Scott's huts were. I was there. I could see everything frozen in time. I had tears in my eyes more than once. Did they freeze? Yes, they did, actually. (laughs) Um, I I actually smell the penguin dung. They call it guano. Mm -hmm. Uh, You cannot imagine how much penguin dung smells. You could see that it's not just the color white. The light, there's reds, the sunsets are unbelievable. It's, you know, it's pretty bright. I mean, I, I was going in February, so that's the Antarctica summer, which is when they went as well. I mean, when they were doing their explorations and their flights, the crew was overwintering when it was really cold inside of uh, huts in Little America. But when they were out working, it was the same time of the year as I was there, and I was frozen. Uh, there was actually a woman on my trip who was actually okay now, but she had a heart attack. Oh, gosh. That's how dangerous it was. This wasn't this little trip that we were doing and we got to the tip of Antarctica and went back. This was really in the Ross Sea. McMurdo was there. One thing I didn't know is how every country has their own station. We actually stopped in the Italian station and had an espresso. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually what I was picturing. And I said, well, I won't ask that. That's absurd. But here you are. <laughs> At one point, we were trying to land on the barrier, which is which is very important to Antarctica history. The Ross Ice Barrier is in all literature. Now we call it the Ross Ice Shelf, but that blocks the continent. And that is where Amiston, who advised Byrd, having been there, that was where he was. He told him to build the town of Little America. 
And when we got there, it was too dangerous to helicopter over. And the only way to go was by the Zodiac. And no one on the expedition was crazy enough to do it. The weather was so bad. But I had made it all the way there. I wasn't not going to go. And six of us went on one Zodiac and hit the barrier about a mile out from the ship. And we touched the ice. And it was overwhelming. It's The barrier is like a mile high of an ice shelf. And at that point, the man who was leading the Zodiac, you know, a steering it said, you know, we're now the southernmost vessel on Earth. <laughs> and it was just a chilling, wonderful moment for me to realize that I had actually done this. I had fear in my heart as well. And you can imagine that we have GPS. Yeah. I actually went in 2015. The book is, just came out in January 2018. But there was GPS. I mean, if something was going on, people could find their way out. <laughs> but that wasn't the case in 1928. But just that sense, the cold, the fear, thrills, I hope that I carried some of that over into Billy's narrative that the reader can feel as they're reading the book. Well, I certainly think so. I, people, I'm sure, can hear that in my voice. These are all amazing people. I always remind myself, nonfiction is not fiction. So when reading this, I did say to myself that these are not characters. I always want to call them characters when it's nonfiction, but they were real people. And there were other young people that tried to reverse Shanghai themselves, if you will, onto the expedition. One of them is Robert Lanier, Robert White Lanier. He seemed worthy of a book himself. So I thought you could take a moment to introduce listeners to him as an example of the kind of extraordinary people that readers will meet beyond the great Admiral Byrd, beyond Billy, who's the stowaway of the title, but the other people that are on this boat with him. Well, I think the one thing that you have to know right off the bat is that this man was African-American. He was a young man who was 20 years old who had heard about the young man who had gone with Peary to the North Pole, and he was very excited to possibly away and become the first African-American to actually make it to the South Pole, kid or man. And what was fascinating to me was that there were three stowaways, as I, I mentioned, there's a Jewish stowaway, there's a Polish Catholic stowaway and a black stowaway, sort of like the opening of a joke. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, it caught the imagination of Americans. All of the various presses would root for, like there was a very strong African-American press in the 1920s, and he was their hero. The Jewish stowaway was very heavily covered in the Jewish press, and the Polish Catholic stowaway, which is our hero, Billy, not only is covered in the regular press, but in the Polish press as well. What was fascinating was the first person to really be taken on was Robert, not necessarily because they saw him as this great man, but because Bird wanted to have a black assistant along. And there's sort of this racism that could not be really said in old books when Bird was alive. But it's not necessarily that he's a racist. It's part of the time. I mean, the New York Times and many papers across the country talk about coaxing Robert White Lanyard out with watermelon. I mean, I was shocked. as I, I, I actually had to put a few things in brackets because I wanted the reader to know that this is coming from the time. And it was in every newspaper. He was treated terribly by the crew. There were people popping up that were just disgusted that they were the 70,000 applicants and they're taking a black man along. And that was really eye-opening. I had no idea about that until I entered the story. And then I tried to trace 
him, he continued to try to stow away after he was brought back um, because of racism on the ship. And he thought, well, I still have to get in front of Admiral Byrd. I'll make it all the way to New Zealand. He was sent back in Panama, but he got his way somehow to New Zealand to try to make his case. And there he was also the victim of racism and arrested for supposedly stabbing someone on a ship. I mean, people just were really against him. And he had a similar persistent spirit that Billy did. And he was, again, a very different story being told in the African-American press. Uh, one of the things that was very fascinating was, for me was how do I track these side characters? And so after I had done my main research, I tried to find what happened to the other stowaways. And I was very successful with that, I might add. But Robert proved a little bit more stubborn because he starts to disappear from the historical record. And I actually enlisted the help of someone I was watching on television on PBS's Genealogy Roadshow, (laughs) who specializes in African-American history. And I just wrote her a note and she called me back and we worked together to try to see how far we can go. I was able to find the children from the Jewish stowaway and I was able to meet with them in person. And that was fantastic. And what were his motivations? I think that the lesson that anyone who's an aspiring history writer can take from this is that the more access you have, the richer the detail you're going to have. I didn't want to make them into caricatures. I wanted to make them into real people facing different challenges. I mean, one of the challenges that Billy was facing was his parents relied on his income, especially during the Depression. But Robert Lanier was facing racism that Billy never faced. That was fascinating to me as well. We love to read those old news stories, and that's one of the ways you find the idea. But one of the things is I talk with Charles Learson, his book, another Simon & Schuster book, Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty. And one of the things that put him as a journalist onto the idea that many of these myths about Ty Cobb as this terrible racist were not true is many of the stories where they just invented or many of the myths where people would say, well, he attacked this black bellman and also a black concierge at a hotel. And he said, you know what was my first clue was that in the stories at the time, they just said a bellman and they just said a bellboy. Whereas in every story, it would always just be, you would have to put in there the word Negro that they used at the time, which was one of the kinder ones. He said, if you could say Negro attacks man or if Ty Cobb fights Negro, that's what they would put. And he said, so that was my first clue that let me look and see. And and that's what clued him in. I mean, this is one, a rare positive example, I guess. I can't imagine another positive way that will be used, but that's how pervasive it was. I can imagine editors back then at the New York Times saying, well, why didn't you put that in? Come on, Sex it up a little bit. Let's try to get a, a racial component. And here for Robert, part of that is people say you can't take it down there. They just didn't think that people of African descent could do it. So he is really driven, and that's one of the kinds of people he goes to Tahiti. He travels everywhere. So I, he travels I just... everywhere. And and you have to remember again. I want to really reiterate: there were everyone wanted to go on this trip. The richest kids in America were wanting to work as bottle washers. The idea that Bird initially let someone who was black first part of the trip did not sit well with a larger American public. And it was amazing to see the newspaper articles from the day how, I mean, just openly racist some of the journalists were. And you have to also remember this is the era of the Ku Klux Klan as well. 
when they were at the height of their power. And it was fascinating to me because that wasn't something that I had gone into the story thinking about. And I really had a new understanding of some of the social issues that each of my characters were facing. I mean, Bird, of course, was the perfect all-American, and that was one of the reasons he was an idol, was that he was he was a fresh, clean-looking guy from Virginia, from a good family, and it was fascinating to me to see that that you know what today we don't really think about the Catholics of America facing prejudice, but that was the case in the 1920s as well. So that I mean, think about my father once again. My my historical source, my old dad that lives in my house, was telling me about how he cried when Kennedy was elected president because he never Al Smith lost in um, the 1920s, and there was such prejudice against him because he was Catholic. So that was fascinating that here was a Catholic kid going to Antarctica and the issues he faced there as opposed to an um, an African-American. All of those social classes became very clear to me after years of research, where it was all a little fuzzy when I was diving into the water, so to speak. (laughs) the chilly water of the Hudson River there off Pier 1 in Hoboken. And it's great to go back. And if you're going to travel back in history, let's wear our real glasses so we see things clearly, not the rose-colored glasses. Let's really feel what their lives were like and what the country was like here right before the Great Depression. And then when the Great Depression hits, and you cover that a little bit and how Billy confronts that, it's something that fleshes them out. You see what their real challenges are and don't turn away from it when you read the book. And that makes it all all very three-dimensional. Thank you. I think that that was the thing that was really fascinating to me was how quickly this fame went away for all these men. They were household names in the United States in 1928. Think about the journey. It's from 1928 to 1930 they return. In 1929 is the stock market crash. And they were very lucky to get a ticker tape parade upon their return. But the Depression had already started to take away the attention of these larksome adventures, and Americans were really focused on, on having a roof over their head. Of course, it got a little bit worse as the early 1930s continued with the Dust Bowl that happened, but in 1929, people started to really care less about big, splashy ticker tape parades. They spent... What was it? $25,000 in 1928 dollars on that ticker tape parade? Wasn't it something like that? So it was really a lot, wasn't it? Well, fortunately, Jimmy Walker, the flashiest mayor in American history, was the sexy playboy mayor of New York City in the 1920s, was good friends with Admiral Byrd. Admiral Byrd was friends with everybody, it seems. <laughs> but he secured a ticker tape parade for him even when after the stock market crash. He got elected in January 1930. They were coming back in the spring of 1930. So even before they were coming back, they knew the parade was going to go on. And there was a great crowd, don't get me wrong. And there was a movie to come out. This time, Bird had a film crew in Antarctica, which is a wonderful film that anyone can watch on YouTube with Bird at the South Pole, which is one of the last silent films. But it did win the Academy Award for Cinematography in 1930 with Bird at the South Pole. And that's able for all viewers to just watch on YouTube. But what I was going to say is that 
there was tremendous interest in them coming back, but it wasn't as strong as when they left because when they came back, these men who had been household names still had to join the breadline. They still had to find work. And it was wonderful that they were feted and they got parades, but now who's going to employ them? Because they were working for Bird for free. For the most part, these were volunteer positions, and they thought they were going to be handsomely paid. No one could see the stock market crash coming in the middle of this expedition. Yeah, the disaster wasn't the one like the Titanic that they might have expected hitting an iceberg. It was a financial crash that ends up devastating them. And here's Bird scrambling. He comes across as a very honorable guy. He's trying to help everyone, but he can barely help himself. So it does take the book there into another direction as you get towards the end and see Billy. He faces another struggle with his parents and all of that, and he still keeps that same drive. He's not the plucky kid anymore. He's a man by the time he comes back. He's taller. His voice is no longer cracking. But you really get to follow a unique journey. It's amazing that it was forgotten. I think one of the things that was the most amazing find for me was I actually traveled to Ohio State University, which has a tremendous archive of all of Bird's four expeditions. I I think Bird thought that he would be famous through the ages, and he kept everything. And there was a stowaway file, and no one had ever really looked at it. And I grabbed it, and in it was these incredible correspondence, not only between Billy and Admiral Bird, but between Admiral Bird and his immigrant mother, who was really worried about her son. And that was a fa- and desperate, desperate in the Great Depression. And that was an incredible correspondence that he had no idea existed. His mother did not tell him that this existed. And neither the, wi- the widow had never seen these letters either. And it offered yet another window onto what was really going on. In fact, his whole life, he was wondering why he didn't get invited back on the second expedition to Antarctica. And the answer for me was right in that file, which is that his mother begged Bird not to put him on that. She didn't want her son to be risk, to be risking his life again. And he grew up his whole life not knowing that that communication had occurred. And I was reading it so many years later in the middle of Columbus, Ohio. Huh. Amazing, right? That was this whole thing. That's the kind of thing. Do you really feel like you have that perspective, that wider author perspective that you have of somebody's life, things they don't even know about it? What an amazing find. Yes, he was. I mean, I think that was one of the most painful things for him is, you know, he had done such a good job in Antarctica. He used his swimming skills to help save the Jewish member of the expedition, Benny Roth, who couldn't swim. And Bird loved him. And he was used for great promotional ability as the stowaway kid. But why was he not asked back? What did he do wrong? How would he ever know that his mother wrote him a letter? I would kill my mother if I found that out. Yeah, I know. (laughs) She smartly never told her son. So he died not ever knowing that. (sighs) That's tough. But there's many, many uplifting moments here in the books. I don't want people to think that there are downers. That's something that Billy does live a full life. So it's not as if he he gets to go on such an adventure that that should have been enough for one lifetime. But he goes on (laughs) many more that we haven't touched upon here. 
I can catch sight of the Ross ice shelf from the deck of our ship here, which I feel like a fool saying because my tears are not freezing. I've been to Brandon, <laughs> Manitoba in the middle of winter at around Christmas time. So I've been pretty cold, but even that I don't think is quite an Arctic cold. So we'll wrap up our interview here with a final question. And that is looking back from our warm purchase here in the 21st century with GPS, what do you hope readers, especially those that are maybe around Billy's age, just trying to find their way in the world, decide what adventures they are going to follow in their lifetimes, will take from his example in the stowaway to capture some of this adventurous spirit that Bird personified in the age of adventure? I think what was fascinating is that, to me, that Billy Gronsky was a reader and he loved books. And he loved adventure stories. And what really opened his life was reading. And his determination was to be remembered, to be significant. And he felt that, that although he could have a good life in the upholstery business, that wasn't going to give him the kind of significance that would go down in a book. And I think that reading is the one thing that really did open his life. And I hope that readers young and old will continue to do so to read. I mean, never stop reading and then also not giving up. If he gave up, he would have never have gone. I mean, he was caught and he was sent home in disgrace. And I felt that to do his story service, I had to keep going until I was able to crack the, the narrative. For me, that occurred when I found his wife alive. But my two takeaways, I would guess, is to really read widely and to be persistent. Well, Lori Gwen Shapiro, author of The Stowaway, thank you so much for giving me something great to read because this was a fantastic book. I enjoyed it so much. I did have many of those oh, come on moments, things like the his mother writes a letter to Admiral Burton <laughs> says, please don't take my son. It's like you really flesh these people out. It's like sitting down to dinner with Billy and his family many times. And then on the boat, this plucky Polish-American kid from Bayside, Queens, by way of the Lower East Side, Tahiti, New Zealand, Antarctica, and so many points in between. I wish you the best of luck with this wonderful adventure, and thank you again for your time. Thank you. It's been a real joy to talk with you. Again, the book is The Stowaway, A Young Man's Extraordinary Adventure to Antarctica. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there or even navigate using the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. Say you want to pick up a super thick parka or some boots for your own polar exploration or just shoveling the driveway. You go to historyauthor.com, that banner takes you to Amazon, and Amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra clicks, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My sincere thanks to Lori Gwen Shapiro for joining us and for talking about her hot book about a very chilly adventure. Visit her online at lauriegwenshapiro.com, follow at Lori's Stories on Twitter and Instagram, or toss her a like to facebook.com slash Lori Gwen Shapiro. 
And by the way, all of her social media is really a great addition to the book because she shares a lot of the pictures, a lot of the background, and things that just didn't fit in the narrative but are really great to enjoy once you fall in love with Billy. And while you're online, want to follow us at our new The History Author Show Instagram account or let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or Facebook.com slash History Author. That's it for this installment of The History Author Show. I hope you'll join us in 14 days for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. And again we present in person, Admiral Richard E. Byrd. Greetings, adventurers, young and old.